How free is the Muslim world? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mustafa Akil. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Mustafa Akil. Mustafa is a journalist and author who studied political science and history at Bogazici University. Since the early 2000s, he has been writing regular opinion columns for Turkish publications like Hurriyet Daily News, and recently for the Middle East-focused AlMonitor.com. Since fall 2013, he is also a regular contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. He is also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. He has published six books in Turkish, including Rethinking the Kurdish Question, What Went Wrong? What Next? in 2005, and The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims in 2017. He also has an upcoming book set for release in April 2021 called Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. His 2011 book, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, makes the argument for Islamic liberalism. His recent research at the Cato Institute gets into the stats and facts about the freedom in the Muslim world, and both of these pillars will form the base of our conversation today. Mustafa, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for hosting me. It's a pleasure to have you on. So our question today is how free is the, is the Muslim world? And I think that invites us to explore two angles. On the one hand, if Islam is a religion compatible with what some may consider traditional liberal democratic ideas of freedom, and then on the other hand, the political realities of the Muslim majority countries today. So, so let's talk about Islam first, and then we can observe what's going on in the Muslim majority world later. So I think a good place to start might actually be how you begin your book. So you say for us to understand and have a discussion like this correctly, we do need to go back 1400 years ago, essentially, and understand the origins of Islam, at least some specific tenets of it. And then you say in the book as well that then we can look at what happened to liberty along the way in the practical world. So, I, so I'd like to do that. Of course, there's there's more than we can cover in one episode together. But maybe you can sketch for us, you know, a couple of things about, for instance, who the Prophet Muhammad was and some things perhaps many Westerners simply don't know about him and some of his fundamental teachings and the origins of Islam. And then, of course, we can connect that to why you view there's some serious seeds there for traditional liberalism? Sure. I mean, first of all, as someone who's been working on these issues for a couple of decades now, I will not tell you that, yes, Islam, the Islamic tradition, as it is today in its mainstream, is compatible with liberal democracy or classical liberalism. I'm not going to say that. There are tensions. There are some conflicts. What I'm saying is that it can be compatible if we work through some issues. Uh, this has happened in Christianity. I mean, if you go back to five centuries ago, if somebody asked at the time, is Christianity compatible with classical liberalism? Well, the term classical liberalism didn't exist actually at the time, but uh, Christians were doing things like burning heretics at the stake, right? right. They, had an, they had an institution called the Inquisition, at least you know, in parts of Europe. So there was a time that Christians thought that you should impose Christianity by force, but Christians work through that. And actually, the tradition that we call classical liberalism played a big role there. I mean, when you read John Locke uh, writing in this you know, late 17th century, you see, oh, he's discussing these issues about toleration and why heretics should not be suppressed and 
why you know people and the government should not uphold a certain church and so on and so forth. These are the issues that we are dealing in Islam today. Uh, and what I can tell you is that at its core, Islam has certain values that are compatible with classical liberalism. Th these are values like, you know, everybody has a right to life and people should not be forced to convert into Islam. There is no compulsion in religion. You know, that's a famous, uh, oft quoted, let's say, part of a verse in the Quran. Um, and, and there are, since the late 19th century, there are classical liberals who are Muslim and who are trying to reconcile Islamic tradition with the ideas of a free society. So there's a whole literature there. It's called actually Islamic liberalism sometimes. And I'm trying to revive and re-articulate that tradition, especially uh, in terms of uh, the contemporary issues we're discussing. You know, when, when someone makes a cartoon of Prophet Muhammad, how Muslims should respond, right? So that's a burning issue in France, for example. So uh, there are obviously violent and authoritarian Muslim responses uh, to these issues. Uh, there's certainly a concerning uh, authoritarian interpretation of Islam out there in some Muslim-majority states. But it's a spectrum, and uh, others are trying to move forward towards more toleration and freedom. Uh, honestly, it is a bit like the Enlightenment. I mean, it's, it's, we are at a time when the John Locks of the Muslim world are advocating toleration, and others right. are thinking, no, 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 that's too heretical. And, and as I said, like your, your book covers so, so much of this, so we, we can't just like speak about that for hours and hours here. But would you like to get into a couple of tenets of, of Islamic teachings or some of the origins of Islam that, that you feel like are good examples that either are misinterpreted now that are, in your view, more liberal or, or, or some of the seeds that you think you know, create that situation where you can have a or sort of an Islamic liberalism. As I said, just a few examples. We can't do an exhaustive list, of course. Sure. I mean, first of all, I should tell you that, especially for a Western audience, Islam simply is just another Abrahamic monotheistic religion. Mm -hmm. uh, it began with Judaism before all of us, you know, Jews were there. Uh, so monotheism in world history, as we know, it began with the Jews. Then it had a big outburst or expansion with Christianity, and then Islam is the third. And this is clearly stated in the Quran itself. The Quran emphasizes that Prophet Muhammad is the, just the follower, just another uh, representative of the monotheistic tradition coming from Abraham and Moses and Jesus. Uh, so in that sense, the issues we are discussing in Islam are relevant to the issues that has been discussed in Christianity and Judaism. More so in Judaism, I should say, because Islam is a more legalistic religion, just like Judaism. The Sharia that's very controversial these days is actually quite similar to the Jewish halakha. And the big difference is that Jews have not been uh, implementing halakha as a political system you know, in, in the past 2,000 years, but the basic ideas are there. And in this monotheistic tradition, there are ideas, values that, that actually vindicate freedom. One is the right to life. I mean, you just cannot kill people at will. Uh, God has created life and life is sacred. And, and uh, so thou shall not murder. I mean, that's in the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's in Islam as well. Islam uh, also from the beginning has valued property rights. That's something very interesting and important to note. Prophet Muhammad himself was a merchant that had an impact on the way he looked uh, into the world. And 
based on that, I mean, he has a lot of sayings that venerate a trade and uh, trade by mutual consent, as the Quran said. So Islam had actually a very interesting capitalist heritage that people often uh, forget these days. Uh, and, and there are issues when you come to religious freedom and uh, freedom of expression. And on religious freedom, again, there are some fundamentals in Islam actually that, vin that vindicate freedom. One is the idea that people cannot be forced to become Muslims. La ikraha fiddin, no compulsion uh, in religion, is a phrase in Islam that has turned into a motto by liberal-minded Muslims in the past century because it ruled out forced conversions into Islam. That's why Muslims created empires and conquests, so they did what people were doing in the Middle Ages, but they allowed Jews and Christians to remain as Jews and Christians in uh, Muslim-majority countries. And that's why when Jews were persecuted in Spain, for example, in the uh, 15th century, they fled to the Islamic Ottoman Empire right. because the Ottomans would, would, would tolerate them. So for a pre-modern period, there are values of tolerance that are uh, in, in Islamic tradition. However, also Islamic toleration was hierarchical. Muslims were ruling class and they would tolerate Jews and Christians but would not give them equal rights. Uh, apostates and heretics could be killed. So there are a lot of issues in classical Islamic jurisprudence, which the people called Islamists or radicals are trying to still implement today. And the argument of people like me is to say, well, yes, there are those verdicts in Islamic law, but these are historical verdicts. These do not represent the core of the faith. We have to work through these. It was a different time, you know, when apostasy was seen as a crime, it was seen as political treason to the state. Today, people should fully accept, Muslims should fully accept Buddhist freedom. So uh, there are, my, my, my friend and colleague, Daniel Philpott, wrote a good book, I mean, Religious Freedom in Islam. And he there says, I mean, he's a Catholic scholar at Notre Dame, and he says Islam had seeds of freedom, uh, but those seeds need to be uh, cultivated. And I, I fully agree with that. And one thing you just noted there toward the end of your, the end of your statement that I, I would like to drill down to a little further, if you can, which is that you, you said that people need to understand as well that, that, that some of the stories or some parts of what could be called the tradition in Muslim-majority countries were based on cultural realities of that time. So I think one of the cool things about your book is that you're, you're sort of making it clear as you go along that it's very important that we separate the Islamic teachings from some of the Islamic political realities of the time, or, or as you said in your book, uh, people that were Muslims that happened to be authoritarians versus, you know, authoritarian Muslims, if, if that's sort of a way to separate the thinking on that. Definitely. In, in, we call it separating the religious from the historical, right. you know, to use a genre uh, among Islamic theologians, modernist theologians, let's say. And that even goes back to separating the message of Prophet Muhammad from his politics in early 7th century Arabia. Mm -hmm. I mean, Prophet Muhammad, you know, peace be upon him, he had two phases, you know, in, in Mecca, in his city first, he was just a civil preacher. He was preaching monotheism and the pagans persecuted him and his followers. And they had to flee to Medina, another city, uh, of course, uh, in the north. And there they established a state. That state had an army. That army fought battles. Those battles were bloody. There are some passages in the Quran uh, about those battles, you know, which the radicals today, the terrorists who are acting in the name of Islam, sometimes are using out of context. Well, this is just like uh, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who are familiar with the Bible can know that. 
yes, Moses and Joshua had some wars with the Philistines, the Amalekites, uh, the p tribes that you know Israelites were fighting at the time, and they are there in the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but we shouldn't take them literally, and, and, and we should understand them as history, but not as actual commandments. So a lot of Jews would agree with that. In Islam, too, I think the issue is, uh, uh, in the beginning, you see Prophet Muhammad establishing a state, which you can call a theocratic state, uh, and, and that state also had battles, so there's some violence. But for people like me, that was just defensive violence in the first place because Muslims were persecuted, and if they didn't fight, they would be eradicated. Second, it was just an historical experience. That's how things were in 7th century society. What is eternal about Islam is not those battles or, or, or some of the episodes there. What is eternally valid for Islam is the monotheistic message, the morality, and practice. And you can have that in a free society. I mean, Muslims can be pious, pay five times a day, or even wear a headscarf, uh, uh, refrain from, you know, non-halal food. So just like, you know, Orthodox Jews live in today in the modern world as, uh, as uh, citizens of free societies and they contribute to those societies, that is happening in Islam as well. So because a lot of Muslims are already understanding Islam in this sense. Um, but, but, but we haven't for, we haven't made the full transition to, what I call giving up coercive power in the name of religion. Uh, some are still willing to use that, and that's a problem we have. And, and on the note of uh, separating the, the religious from the historical in terms of Islamic societies, I think one of the cool parts of, of your of your book as well, you note that this is also true about when it comes to the Prophet Muhammad himself. So I think this is a misconception in a lot of people's minds about what's going on in Islam. So so you, you essentially point out in the book that it, it's unfair for people to look at his actions relative to his culture at the time and cast judgment on all of Islam, especially when in the Islamic tradition, at least what I pulled from the book and the way I understand it, is that there is cause to for people to look at Prophet Muhammad the human on the one hand, as you said in the book, and then Prophet Muhammad the prophet on the other hand. I believe there was even a story that you pointed out. It was, a, I think, a battle story where one of his trusted advisors or someone that was working with him had asked him if he was making a decision uh, based on revelation or, or God, or if it was just a human tactical decision. And he himself had said in the story, this is a tactical decision. So feel free to disagree with me sort of thing. And I think people don't think that. Yeah, his followers could ask him, is this your decision or is there a revelation from God? So if it was his own decision, they could give an alternative idea. It's in the story that you you actually just reminded exactly. So uh, he, the thing is, people, of course, compare Islam to Christianity, but Prophet Muhammad is not Jesus. He was not divine. He's not the object of worship. He was just a normal man until he received revelation, as we Muslims believe, at the age of 40, and he related a message, and he had to lead a community Sometimes with battles, sometimes with conflict, sometimes with peace. Uh, and then that started a whole movement in world history and, and Islam turned into an empire. And that empire for its time was actually tolerant uh, to other faiths. I mean, in excluding Arab paganism, but you know, Muslims also conquered India and they allowed Hindus to remain as Hindus. So for that time, it was tolerant. The thing is with modernity, uh, ideas like equal citizenship, uh, full religious freedom in terms of, you know, believing in a religion or not at all, and, you know, even propagating against religion. These values became more established in the world. Uh, and 
Islam is still struggling with these. I'll be honest. I mean, if you go to Pakistan today, and if I say if my ideas, you know, preach to certain groups in Pakistan, say, you know, people should be able to blaspheme against Prophet Muhammad, although we don't like it, you know, that you can, you'll get into trouble <laughs> for even right. making yeah. that argument there. So there are a lot of Islamic groups who are really rigid on these issues. Uh, so therefore, I mean, I, I don't, I will not uh, agree with some people who say, oh, there is no problem in the Muslim world. It's just about our bias. It's just about Islamophobia. No, it's not that simple. I'll be honest as a Muslim myself. We have huge problems. However, it is not just also like some of the really Islamophobic people in the West describe as, oh, all Muslims are agents of creeping Sharia and Islam will never be compatible with a free democratic society. No, that's, that's, that's not uh, correct. And we have a Muslim majority societies in the world today who are actually quite free. Uh, I mean, actually, my recent work uh, at the Cato Institute, I published a report, Freedom in the Muslim World. You have Muslim majority societies like Bosnia and Herzegovina or Albania, uh, some West African states. Uh, they're pretty free. I mean, and, and Muslims there, uh, some of them are more pious, some of them are not, just maybe nominal Muslims. But, you know, they're not thinking uh, people should be stoned for adultery or uh, uh, for apostasy. But if you go to Afghanistan or Pakistan or, I mean, Saudi Arabia, you have a very different picture. There. And, I, and I think that back to that that historical and, and religious separation, again, I think a lot of, as you were talking about, like Islamophobia and things like that, some people in the West who ha have misconceptions about Islam, most of it is seems to me based on, on the historical or what happened through, throughout certain periods of time. Like, you know, you hear a lot of misconceptions. Oh, people will say, oh, well, the religion teaches this or the religion teaches that. And they're often referring to an historical event, which at least based on your book and, and my, my learning from you on the topic, that that is simply not the case. Yeah, I mean, let me give you one example. I mean, we people... We we let's say the the reformists or the liberal uh, revive re, let's say liberal reformists in Islam and I would put myself there as well. Um, we emphasize a lot about contextualization. So what does that mean? Uh, Prophet Muhammad has a few sayings. For example, do not send women alone to the desert, or he says a woman should not travel alone for. Uh, a distance more than three days. So these are in Hadith books. Hadiths are sayings of Prophet Muhammad recorded. So people wrote these things. I mean, first of all, it was just an oral tradition. People heard from each other. Then somebody wrote this and it became the Hadith. Um, so based on these Hadiths, Saudi Arabia, until very recently, didn't allow women to drive a car. Uh, they can Still, women cannot tr travel without, quote, a male companion or a male guardian. So a woman cannot travel alone without a husband or a son or some family member. Uh, and they will say, oh, this is in a hadith. Well, uh, there's another view which says, yeah, Prophet said so in 7th century Arabia because there were bandits in the desert. You know, they would attack any alone woman. So you had to accompany a, a female traveler with somebody with a sword, you know. Uh, but today, you know, you get on an Uber car or I don't know, a train or I mean, you're, you're safe. I mean, you're, you're traveling is something different today. So, so though, so the intention there is security is important, you know, for anybody. So we should be concerned about security everywhere in the world. So this is the contextual understanding. And a lot of the issues, uh, in Islamic jurisprudence in Sharia, you know, Islamic law, I think can be dealt through contextualization. And when you look, because when you look into the commandment and its context, 
it had a very understandable reason, you know, why that why that commandment was there. Right. But then right. you just move out to a whole different world. Uh, it, it doesn't for uh, things like again on women's issues on on, on issues of equality. Uh, the Quran, for example, gives uh, females half of the share of a male. Like when a father passes away, he has a son and a daughter. The son gets twice of the female's uh, lot. Uh, today, I mean, this is still practiced in most of the Arab countries. It's in the law, and it is unfair to women. You know, always men get more money, and that you know sustains what you can call patriarchy. Why don't we have equality before the law? Because people will say, I mean, conservatives will tell you, because it's right there in the Quran. But there is another reading of the Quran, which is, well, in 7th century Arabia, it was a very different world. Women were not expected to survive on their own. Uh, no woman, there were no single mothers, you know, everybody was, uh, it was a patriarchal society. And actually giving women half of the share at the time was a huge amount. It was a huge progress for the society. So, so the intention there was to actually uplift women. Today, you uplift women or other parts of or other uh, or other segments in society that are not uh, equal by you know making them fully equal, not 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 by giving them something that is half of the share. And then, actually, on that exact note, you have an interesting quote in your book by American professor David Forte. He essentially says that if you really look at it. The origins of Islam seem to have had the potential to set up a trajectory right from the beginning uh, in predominantly Islamic societies to be liberal societies if they stuck to the, some of the core teachings. So, you know, uh, he claims like, you know, to get rid of slavery, to establish religious liberty. Um, th these could have been things that Muslim majority countries could have looked back on and, and been proud of and say, these are some of the first for us in this region, at least. Um, but in many cases, as you're pointing out, he, he notes that we observe today that they are at least either at last or behind in these areas. So you note in your book that it's important to understand what went right and what went wrong throughout history. And I think we covered a, a couple of things about what went right, or at least some of the interesting tenets of Islam that have some liberal roots. Um, so, you know, in your mind, again, at a high level and everyone listening, there's tons of this stuff in Mustafa's book. So I, we definitely encourage you to check that out. But at a high level, can, can you trace or give us some ideas of what went wrong per se? I know there's different nations, different cultures, and this is very complicated. We can't just say the Muslim world, for instance, that would be silly. But was it just a nation building and state building because these were the cultural tendencies of the time? Uh, what's your general idea of, quote, what went wrong as you talk about in your book? Well, that's a very big question, right? I mean, and yes, uh, but but I, I'll try to offer a few answers. I mean, first of all, on the very visible level, what went wrong is that Muslim world could not adopt fully yet to modernity. I mean, we're speaking about the liberal tradition. I mean, liberal tradition is in the modern era. I mean, as, as, as again, like five centuries ago, nobody would criticize Islam for having, for lacking enough freedom, right? I mean, Christian, Christ, Christendom wasn't more free than Islam. Actually, right. interesting, in the, six, in the 15th, 16th century even, you could hear Christians admiring Ottoman Empire for being pluralistic. Right, right. Uh, French, you know, uh, scholar John Bowden said, you know, look at the Ottoman Empire there. Everybody can pray as they want. You know, there are different churches because Christians were killing each other for being Catholics and Protestants and Ottomans wouldn't care. You know, Christians, different denominations existed in the Ottoman Empire. So this is a modern problem. What happened is that in the West is that in the past three, four centuries, thanks to liberalism, 
thanks to the Industrial Revolution, thanks to the idea of human rights, thanks to democracy. Uh, and also, let's not forget that some horrible experiments took place in the West, too. I mean, Nazism or fascism came out in the West, too. Absolutely. But also by defeating those, the West has come to a liberal democratic consensus. Uh, it was earlier in the U.S., uh, but you know, later with in, in, in Europe, with the European Union. So ideas of human rights, freedom became established. In Islam, this transition has not fully happened, at least not in all Muslim-majority countries. And uh, it can happen. And for Muslim, for many Muslims, they resist this change, sometimes out of religious conservatism. Secondly, because precisely because it's coming from the West, because, you know, it's the same West that colonized us. It's the same West that, that occupied our country. So there is something called modernity that is coming, but you cannot fully accept it. And when you accept it, uh, you lose you will lose yourself, you know, you will not, you will be betraying your identity, traditional. So there are all those complications. Uh, so this is basically what we're living through. But I would even go deeper than that. And that is the topic of my new quest. Uh, that, that's the, one of the topics uh, in my forthcoming book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance. There I argue that the reason why we cannot or could not fully adapt to, to liberal modernity or see any value in it, I mean, you don't have to buy into everything, but see any value in it is because also of some theological paradigms that became dominant in Islam, even before modernity. That happened in the, let's say, 10th, 11th century. Uh, Islamic thought became insular. There was a time Muslims were actually studying Aristotle and Plato and Greek philosophy. And actually, that was the dynamic time of the Islamic civilization. That was rejected as alien. And uh, Islamic philosophy was rejected. Islamic theology became repetitive. And why that happened, so that's happened even before modernity, is a big question. And uh, I, I explained there the dominance of a certain uh, theological creed called Asharism uh, was important uh, because it, uh, it ruled out any, any secular or independent from religion and any kind of thought that is not based on revelation. And, and that created a cultural cocoon and Muslims lost interest in other ideas. Uh, and when those other ideas came with colonial West, you know, they became even more reactionary. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mustafa Akil today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Lawrence Kong, Liam O'Brien, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You listen to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mustafa Akil. So at the first half, Mustafa, we talked about a lot of things. We discussed some of the tenets of, of Islamic teachings. We discussed a couple of things about the Prophet Muhammad, and we laid the groundwork to talk about 
at least start coming towards the, the, the present day. But but towards the end of our first half, you're talking about your forthcoming book and some of the things that are in your mind right now about these discussions, specifically the theological issue you were teasing out towards the end of the first half. So before we jump into some of your research at, at Cato right now, why don't we why don't we finish finish that off a bit? And you could talk a bit more about that so we can we can tie that end nicely. Sure. I mean, this is a very complicated issue, but uh, consider this as a teaser for my forthcoming book. Um I think one of the key issues in Islam and in actually in a religion is what philosophers call the Euthyphro dilemma. Uh, what is that? I mean, you can check it on Wikipedia or something. Uh, it is basically this question about how do we understand divine commandments, right? There are divine commandments in every religion, right? Like, uh, I mean, in most religions, let's say, <laughs> at least in Abrahamic religions, for sure. Let's, I mean, God says, thou shall not kill, right? Thou shall not steal. Like these are 10 commandments, let's say. So the dilemma is this, or the question is this. Uh, does God say, do not kill because it is objectively wrong to kill? Or does killing become wrong because God said so? Uh, this is a very interesting thing because when you say things become right or wrong only because God said so, you limit yourself only to your religious tradition. Right. Whereas if you say, well, these are objective truths, these are things people intuitively can know through conscience, through philosophy, through, you know, uh, other means, just religion is confirming or reminding these ideas. I mean, God, even if God didn't say don't kill, yeah, killing is bad. I mean, we wouldn't know that for sure. Right. It's good that, you know, our religion is saying that as well. I'll just remind. So in Islam, uh, the, I, uh, the first view is called divine command theory. Like divine commands establish right and wrong. The other one is called ethical objectivism. It, it says there are ethical realities in the world. Uh, human nature can understand these. Uh, so there, there can be natural law. You know, that's very important for the liberal tradition. In Islam, the divine command theory became the dominant theological view uh, beginning. And this was hotly disputed in early centuries of Islam, but ultimately became a, uh, the dominant view, let's say, by the 12th, 13th century. And after that, Islamic thought becomes more insular because if you say, all value comes from religion and religion, religious commandments, then there is no reason, there's no even ground to consider other ideas. So I think, and in, in, in my forthcoming book, I explain how this happened. I get into the details. I explain why this happened. There was a lot of political <laughs> reasons behind that. And actually, I think for Muslims, one key issue will be to understand how our religious tradition has been heavily influenced by political powers, which had their own interests. You know, we have blasphemy laws because some caliphs and sultans wanted to get rid of their critics. You know, we, once we understand that, things become more clear. So there are issues like this that needs to be honestly discussed in, 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 in the Islamic world. And those discussions are being pushed by intellectuals and scholars. I'm trying to be one of them. 
so, and my my forthcoming book will be getting into these more theological issues. So, so it looks like we're going to have to have you back when your new book comes out. Inshallah, as we say, yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I'm going to shift our gears here a little bit because uh, I, I, we're we're not towards the end of our episode together, but we're on the certainly the downward slope in the sense of time. So, I, I do want to make sure we get your your, your research at, at Cato in here. So. Um, you looked at freedom in Muslim-majority countries in this big study that was published on Cato, and you first talked about, mostly talked about personal freedom. We can talk about economic freedom in a second. But when we're talking about personal freedom, we're talking about things like the rule of law, security and safety, freedom of movement, religion association, all that kind of stuff. So so I want to start there with, with Muslim-majority countries and your findings. And uh, in our episode notes, everyone listening, you could see that we'll, we'll link to that study. Um, so you say that we should be concerned... Uh, with Muslim majority countries in the world because of its because of their comparative lack of personal freedom compared to the West. But you also do note that there is a wide variance in the Muslim majority countries themselves, right? So some are even above world average. So I want to talk a bit about the best and, and the worst at a high level, and then we could talk about very specific tenants. So on the one hand, we do have places like Bosnia, Herzegovina, and on the other hand, we have places like Syria, Egypt, and Turkey. At a, at a very high level, can you sketch out some immediate differences that jump out and why we have some best and, and some worst? What, what are some of the fundamental tenets that you think make them in such a way? I mean, when people in the West speak about the Muslim world or Islamic world, I mean, the countries that come to their mind is typically what? Saudi Arabia, Iran, yeah. some Middle Eastern, mostly Arab countries, um, but or Pakistan and, you know, but the, the Muslim world is quite diverse. And in, in the report that you're referring to, uh, Freedom in the Muslim World, the, that Cato Institute published. Um, uh, so there I show that, yes, by and large, on average, the Muslim world is very troubled because it has very low levels of freedom compared to the world average. But then I sh- show, well, this also, this so-called Muslim world is quite diverse and the least free part of it is Middle East and North Africa, which is, you know, uh, the Arab world and also Iran, uh, basically, uh, and Pakistan is there as well in Afghanistan. Although Afghanistan was not in our report because we didn't have data. On the other hand, when you look into regions in the Muslim majority world, the countries that you mentioned, which even don't occur to many people when you say the Muslim world, Bosnia, Herzegovina, former Yugoslavia. Right, right. European, it's in, in Eastern Europe. Albania as well, Kosovo too, although it's not in our report because of lack of data. I mean, these are Muslim-majority countries. Their freedom levels are in the same level with Greece or Argentina. So they are, and of course, one big difference is is that these are Muslim-majority, but their constitutions and laws are secular. Uh, They are Europeanized in terms of their institutions and even even culture to some extent. Well, they are European, actually. I mean, they are on continent, Europe for centuries. uh, also, in in West Africa, countries like Burkina Faso, Senegal, you you have pretty uh, free societies. They are not very developed economically, but they are free societies. And also, when you look at, for example, Central Asia, you see countries like Kazakhstan, uh, which is politically not free, but on women's rights, they're doing totally okay because you know again, there is no Islamic law there. So, w- countries where you have Islamic law in the penal code, which is about more than a dozen countries. Those countries are quite unfree on most uh, criteria. That is 
freedom of religion, freedom of expression. They have blasphemy laws. They have apostasy laws. But even in some of those countries, you might have good economic freedom. So that's a different category. I mean, if you look into economic freedom, United Arab Emirates or Qatar are doing pretty fine. So it's a complicated picture. And it shows two things that there is a burning freedom deficit in the Muslim majority world. But the same world is complicated and different. And by the way, there might be reasons for lack of freedom that is not related to Islam at all. I mean, uh, there are, I mean, some of the Central Asian republics are pretty oppressive, not because anything due to Islam, because they're former communist <laughs> regimes right. that are still communist by and large. Uh, and when you go to Indonesia, you see a pretty, you know, relatively free Muslim majority. So actually, the biggest, most populous Muslim majority country in the world is Indonesia. Its religious traditions are quite different from the Middle East. So it is complicated. It's diverse. So it's hard to speak of a Muslim world in general. But if we do, uh, there are there's a problem I told you, which is the freedom deficit. But also there's a diversity that we should not forget. And one of the things you mentioned there was that in Muslim majority countries with high personal freedom, relatively speaking, you know, uh, or again, even some of them have actually above the world average. I encourage everyone to check out the reports. Very interesting. You, as you said, they are either secular or have very limited applications of Islamic law. So how do we sort of, and I know this is a big question. I know it's like, can go either way. We can go for hours, but how do we reconcile that with sort of the first part of our conversation where we say that there are seeds in the Islamic tradition for more liberal societies, even if somebody went the more, if you will, religious route in terms of a societal organization. Does this just come back to us needing to really untangle, again, the religion from the history to understand how they got there? Is that really what it comes down to again? Well, I mean, first of all, Islamic law, uh, as it is understood today, is not liberal. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I mean, th there are things like property rights. Okay. So, and if a country is run by Islamic law, uh, as it is defined in mainstream jurisprudence in the Sunni or Shia. Right, right, okay. World, uh, you will, that country will not be communist, so you can be positive about that. So there will be private property, some independent foundations, so you will have some guarantees, but it will not be very liberal. It will have blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, uh, some inequalities for women, and so Islamic law, as it is articulated by uh, Shafi, Hanafi, you know, Hanbali school, these are all Sunni jurisprudential schools, which were all built a thousand years ago with little modifications today still. That's not liberal. Uh, what we're saying is that, well, we can go beyond this law and look at its foundations and we can reconstruct it today. Uh, Apostasy laws are there. For example, I mean, if you leave Islam and if you become an atheist and you are, what the punishment given to you is that penalty. So, and that is the law in about a dozen Muslim majority societies. So that is not liberal, obviously. And um, but but the argument of people like me is to say, well, those apostasy laws do not come from the Quran. Uh, the Prophet never commended that. It just was the medieval jurists' perception of the world because they thought that an apostate becomes a traitor to the state uh, and, you know, traitors should be punished. Today, you're, uh, you, by changing your religion, you're not becoming a traitor to any country. You know, it's a, it's a whole different world. So this has to be. So therefore, however, this reinterpretive framework is 
an idea, it's a trend, it's promoted by some thinkers, some scholars, some intellectuals. But in, in, in any Sharia-imposing country today, what you will have is the more mainstream classical jurisprudence, which will have serious tensions with uh, individual freedom. Uh, that also includes, I mean, forcing people to be pious. I mean, there are blasts, I mean, there are laws of Ramadan laws, right? I mean, it's Ramadan, Muslims are supposed to fast, most Muslims do, but, but also there are laws imposing that. I mean, if you eat a burger walking on the street in Saudi Arabia in Ramadan, you will be harassed by the police, you'll probably jailed for that. Uh, and people like me are arguing, well, this is not really what the Quran is saying, but unfortunately, we have this tradition that we have to deal with. Right. It's like, I mean, imagine, I mean, you might have seen the series Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was this dystopian Christian theocracy. I mean, Christianity doesn't have that anymore, thank God. But, but if a, a Christian theocracy ever exists, you know, it will look something like that and it will be pretty oppressive. Uh, and but other Christians will be shocked by that. So, the, in 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 the Muslim world today, some countries are a bit close to that. I mean, that handmaiden's tale situation. Saudi Arabia is probably there, uh, even Iran. And uh, we're arguing against that and saying that yeah, let's give up this idea of course of uh, religion. And on the economic freedom point that you mentioned before, th there are some people, and and I'm not of this view as. as what I view as, as, as a liberal, I don't think is compatible with it. But there are some people that say, hey, you can have a society where you just have forms of economic freedom, but personal freedom is, is either secondary or does, doesn't really matter as much. Again, I don't agree with this, but there are people out there that do say that. Um, so it's interesting to note, kind of as you point out, well, there are examples of that in the world, right? There are some examples of Muslim majority countries where they have probably have a lot more economic freedom than one would think. It's just the personal freedom side that's the problem. Because I, I guess that goes back to sort of the the, the cult the culture and the traditions of, of these areas where, you know, uh, private property and, and, you know, for instance, things like, like merchants, that's just part of the tradition and culture. So, of course, that would naturally be preserved, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the classical Islamic law, uh, the, the classical interpretation of the Sharia jurisprudence, didn't have much tension with economic freedom. Generally, private property is re respected. Uh, you can uh, leave your inheritance, you know, to your children. Uh, I mean, trade is venerated and, and uh, contracts are enforced. Uh, there is the institution of vakf, which is foundation. So you can put your money into some charitable cause and the state cannot confiscate that. That was a big, you know, thing in, in, in the pre-modern era. There are tensions with um, interest, so riba, which is interest-taking. So that's why, actually, you had the development of so-called interest-free banking in the Muslim world. I think what the Quran condemns is not modern-day banking interest, but usury in a very excessive uh, level. So there are some people who make that more, let's say, reformist argument. But even if you think there's a problem, religious problem with interests, again, with some loopholes and uh, going around uh, the rules, uh, Muslims invented interest-free banking in the modern world. So generally, capitalism is not a big problem uh, for many of the conservative. Uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia, you can go open a company in Saudi Arabia. You just sh cannot make sure you don't sell alcohol or right. you know, there, are, there will be personal freedom issues. Just capitalism investment in itself will not be a problem. Interestingly, Muslim societies that have bigger problem with capitalism are the ones sometimes a bit more secular uh, 
like Syria or, and because they became Soviet allies in the Cold War. I mean, most of the Arab republics actually have the least economic freedom. Countries like Egypt, Libya, Algeria, they have very low levels of economic freedom. And they are more secular, actually, compared to countries in the Gulf, let's say, Kuwait, uh, UAE, or Saudi Arabia, uh, the monarchies, because the modernity they incorporated was socialistic modernity. And, and that is one problem in the Muslim world today. The modernity we got was always not, not the most helpful modernity. Right. Uh, that that added an additional layer. As I said to our listeners, we're going to put the, the the report and the study in our episode notes. But just from your personal uh, point of view, when you looked at all these stats, when you were putting together the study, what were the one or two or three, perhaps, uh, s- some of the most interesting tenets of the report that either surprised you or, or confirmed a long-held belief that you had that you thought of and you were happy to see that? Are there any things that really stuck out that you thought, hey, that's pretty interesting or, oh, that's pretty bad? Like, any highlights? Well, one of the... Uh sad facts in the report was about my own home country, which is Turkey. In the report, we look at countries which got better or worse in the past 10 decades. And Turkey was one of the countries which really went downhill in terms of uh, its freedom, which was sad, but also quite accurate because as as a political commentator that also has been following Turkish affairs in the past decade, I know Turkey has unfortunately has taken a very authoritarian path under the letter day rule of President Erdogan. Uh, and you can see that in data. That's interesting. I mean, there are things that you see in political uh, realm. And when you also look into data and you see a confirmation of that, that was interesting. And so Turkey is one of the countries we call the worst trendsetters. Uh, of course, there are others uh, worse than Turkey, Syria, but that's understandable. That's civil war. So uh, Egypt is also another bad trendsetter. It got worse in the past decade. Um, generally, I mean, data confirmed my uh, expectations. I, I, I knew that countries like Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Albania were free, uh, but it was important to see that and very strongly in, in data. Uh, and I try to make a sense of this. One, one of course, uh, connection there we, I discuss is whether democracy advances freedom in the Muslim world. Yes, in general, but it's complicated because Turkey is a democratic country in, if democracy means free elections. You know? uh, but you can have a democracy where the winners of the elections can act in an authoritarian way. Right, exactly. And actually, it's a problem we see in the Western world as well. I mean, mm-hmm. Hungary, you have Viktor Orban, who's, who wins the elections. But when you look at rule of law or freedom of speech under his rule, they're going downhill. So this problem of illiberal democracy uh, is also relevant for the Muslim world. It's very clear in Turkey, for example. We see that in data and also in, 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 in an actual life. Um, so, I mean, to anybody who's uh, listening to us, I would say, as a Muslim myself, I see Muslim world has huge problems, uh, but also there is reason for hope. Uh, Christianity or, you know, Europe struggled with the same issues for a very long time. Uh, so we should both see the problems and also see that there is a path f- for progress and, and some roots for 
freedom and human dignity and human rights in the Muslim tradition. Mustafa, our, our time has completely wound down here. I think it was a great conversation. So, so I want to move us to our, our formal wrap up we do in every episode. So in every episode, we want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So, so let me say, we've talked about a lot. If we can, let, let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of our questions today. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on the one hand, uh, some of the fundamental tenets of Islam, but on the other hand, how free the Muslim world really is. If, if you were to leave people with a couple of takeaways or a couple of things to think about, what would those ultimately be in all of our discussion today? I would say Islam is the third great Abrahamic religion, and it is having the same internal discussions and struggles about fully embracing uh, personal freedom, uh, fully embracing liberalism. And there are grounds in it to interpret in a liberal way, just like John Locke did in Christianity uh, and other some Enlightenment thinkers that actually were Christians, but they were trying to articulate freedom. But Islam has also authoritarian theocratic interpretations out there. And today, those interpretations are struggling with each other in different parts of the Muslim world. And I think... Uh, for the West, who's been following these issues and sometimes getting some uh, uh, heat, you know, because of the uh, radical interpretations, the right thing to do is to understand the complexities, not to condemn a whole religion as as, as an autocratic and liberal force, to understand the nuances in it, uh, and also not to become counterproductive. I mean, one of the things that has made our job difficult in the Muslim world is when the West acts in a way in, in, in double standards when, or when the West uh, uses the language of freedom for colonialism. Uh, I mean, whenever I speak about freedom in the Muslim world and I sometimes refer to the Western world, the responses I get is, oh, you're speaking of the colonial West that came and bombed our countries. And I'm saying, yeah, that was bad. I mean, I don't mean that, but you know, that should not happen. So we don't need more confrontations between Muslim societies. We don't need more endless wars, no occupations of Iraq and things like that. Uh, and also, uh, the other response I get is that, oh, what, what freedom are you talking about? Is it what bends a headscarf in France? Uh, so uh, some of the limitations on Muslim practice in Western societies, and by that I especially mean France and Quebec, maybe speaking of your country, they don't help. I mean, because Muslims should understand that they can be pious, conservative, uh, and be respected in a free society. So they can understand the value of a free society. If by a free society we mean people, freedom for only who dine and wine and who wear bikinis, you know, right. that is not, that's, that's okay. I mean, of course, that's wonderful. But freedom should mean a woman should be able to wear a bikini or a very conservative Islamic dress. And that's all freedom. And a society should have. So that, that's why, I mean, I've been critical of the Saudi religion police that forces women to cover their head. I'm critical of the French secularism police, which goes to beaches and make sure that Muslim women don't wear burkini. And it doesn't help because it only helps the Islamists or the radicals who are, who are saying all this liberalism thing is a lie. They will never respect us. It's liberalism only for non-Muslims, not for us. No, let's show that it's for everybody. That you know, in a free society, 
there's space for everybody. There's freedom for everybody unless they, you know, violate other people's freedoms. I think that's an excellent place to tie it off. So Mustafa Akil, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you for having me, Alex. It was a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.